0: You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And here's your host, Aram Layton. This is Locked On MLB Prospects, your go-to podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. As always, I'm your host, Arm Leighton. I'm a prospect writer and analyst, as well as the founder of JustBaseball.com. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about a couple things. One, we're talking about Wander Franco and the reported offer that the Rays have put forward, or at least some of the preliminary negotiations, to lock him up for potentially 10 years. I'm going to share my thoughts on that and some of the other prospects prospect deals that have not quite gone as well as maybe you would have hoped because it's been done in the past. We've seen it done with guys right when they break into the big leagues, guys sometimes right as they're about to break into the big leagues. And for the most part, the type of player that has really been given that deal is generally supposed to be those as close to can't-miss types of guys as you can get, and the track record of it is a bit shaky. I'm going to talk about why Wander Franco obviously transcends that besides besides the fact that he's just a freak at baseball and one of the safest prospects we've ever really seen in terms of his bat-to-ball skills, his defensive ability at shortstop, athleticism, all that good stuff. Still, there's a lot of reasons, control-wise, contract-wise, why it would make sense for him to take this deal, and I really hope that the Rays and Wanda Franco are able to pull this off because it would be great to see one of baseball's young stars stick with The small market team, even though the Rays are perpetually competitive, stick with the small market team for a long time. That's something I would like to see, and this deal would help that happen. I'm also going to start the preliminary uh, dive into the Yankees' top prospects, publishing that on JustBaseball.com, and I'll probably get through one to five, depending on how much time I spend on Wander Franco, and then we'll have part two of the Yankees' top 10 prospects in tomorrow's episode. But let's start with Franco, because... This contract, the report is that it's 10 years between 150 and 200 million for conversation's sake. Let's assume it's on the 200 side, because that's where it really should be, given how good this guy is. And I know that Ronald Acuna Jr. took 100 million over eight years, but I think that that was just a horrible mistake. The idea of taking the deal is not a horrible mistake because you ensure a large amount of money and a, a strong financial floor. The part that was a mistake, and I think that was malpractice by his agent, is the fact that the final two years of the deal are club options. Yes, club options at $17 million in 2027 and 2028. So he is under team control until 2028 because I don't really see a world where... Unless Ronald Acuna has significant injury issues, which obviously the torn ACL was a bit of a freak incident and he is just such a good player. I doubt that they're going to be turning down 17 million dollars on a 29 year old Ronald Acuna in 2027 or a 30 year old Ronald Acuna in 2028. So that was the weird part of it. I know that you have to give a couple extra years to provide some incentive you got to give to get right and if you're going to ask for money instead of arbitration and also the baseline minimum during the team control years you're gonna have to give up a little bit on the back end I understand that but I think they gave up too much on the back end so looking at the Wander Franco scenario I, I think they're gonna make sure that that doesn't happen to Wander I think his agent is gonna make sure that that doesn't happen to him but the interesting part is You look at what he gains. Obviously, he could, if he doesn't take this deal, could hit the open market a little bit earlier as soon as 2028 is when he'd be an unrestricted free agent. Still not very soon, but relatively soon compared to taking the 10-year deal. The difference being he has this coming year where he will be making the minimum if he doesn't take the contract. Then he has two more years after that where he's making the minimum under team control and then three years of arbitration. Guessing by his performance and how the baseline salaries will presumably rise over the next few years, he'll be making several million dollars and then parlay that into probably $10 million in arbitration two, and then maybe even more than that in arbitration three. Still would be well under 20 million. Guys just don't make that much in arbitration. So he's making way more up front. You imagine almost for round numbers, he's making 19.5 million more next year. You could parlay that with three straight years where he's making about 55 to 60 million more than he would have been making in those first three seasons, depending on how they structure it. But it all kind of evens out. And then between 10 to at least 5 million on the back end, I'd say closer to 8 to 10 million on each of the arbitration years averaged out is what he's going to make more than what he would have been making. So you're making almost 100 million more dollars throughout those years. And then you still hit unrestricted free agency at the age of 30 maybe 31. So he could still go get another massive deal. And who knows where the market's going to be at that point, right? He could probably get a six year, $300 million deal at that point, maybe even more than that. So when he's getting something like that afterwards, you have the baseline of 200 million. Then you have still your mega free agent deal at 30 years old. Wander Franco is in the most enviable position possible because he got up to the big leagues so young at 21 years old would be the first year of this deal. So getting out of this big deal on the back end, which how many guys are going to sign 10 year deals and then be able to sign another mega contract. It just doesn't happen. And that's why I think Wander should absolutely take this. He just turned 20 17 days ago. So this is still somebody that's going to be really, I guess 30 years old at the end of the deal. It's a no brainer and you save yourself the limited amount of money on the front end and then also still get the mega deal on the back end. I want to see the deal for multiple reasons. Of course, the financial security for Wander Franco is awesome, and you know it's just cool to see unprecedented deals. But also, it would be great to see Wander and a superstar and one of the best young players in the game already, and potentially could be the best player in the game in a few years, being with one of the small market teams and not always just seeing these small market teams be the feeders for the larger, larger market teams this would be a great way to kind of circumvent that and prevent it from happening with the prospects you are really confident in. The weird thing is the other occasions where we've seen it, it's been with prospects that I'm not even as confident in and wasn't as confident in at the time. Some other examples of prospects who have gotten deals, and of course, not nearly as big as these contracts, but still guaranteeing 10 $20, 30000000 million to prospects outside of Acuna have been instances where it doesn't age well. The Phillies, for example, giving Scott Kingery, I believe it was something along the lines of six years, $24 million. <laughs> That's pretty pretty brutal. And yes, there's club options on the back end, so they protect themselves where I would assume they're going to turn down unless Scott Kingery has some magic ability to just put it all together. Uh, at 2024, 20, at 30 years old, they're going to turn down that $13 million club option, presumably. Evan White, another prospect that is a glove-first first baseman. Uh, I'm never going to be that excited about those kind of guys. I know he hit well in the minor leagues, but just not one of my favorite prospects when he was coming up. And obviously, the Mariners felt something to give him this deal, but they gave him six years, $24 million as well. And that's not looking great. He really struggled his rookie year and then was injured last season. And I'm not even sure how he fits into things this coming year. Then on a lesser scale, but a way more risky proposition here, John Singleton, who had a lot of issues with substance abuse, they gave him the Astros that was five years, 10 million. Not as bad financially, but they took a chance on makeup and it didn't work out there either. So there's instances, and I'm not comparing those instances to Wander Franco. What I'm actually saying is Wander Franco is where you do this. He's where it's it's a no-brainer. If you're the Rays, you have to take this chance. It's your only shot at retaining Wander for this long because the second Wander hits unrestricted free agency – You're not keeping him. So basically, they're paying up front. They're saying, yes, we have this control over you, but we are willing to pay you up front now to get some more years on the back end and get four extra seasons on the back end. And it's it's a no brainer for the Rays. I think it's pretty close to a no brainer for Wander to get that 200 million and still be able to go get that big contract. So love to see that would be great to see. The Rays and Wander be able to work this out, and it's just a testament to how special this kid is and how good he is going to be for a very long time, or at least how confident the Rays are in that and how confident I am in that as well. I'm going to get into these Yankees top five prospects, which, of course, you can check out the link in the description where you can find that top prospect list. Also, if you want to hear a little bit more Wander Franco discussion, I talked a little bit about this on the Just Baseball Show or my other podcast that I'm doing where we dove a bit deeper into the topic as well on the financials of the Wander Franco deal over there. That was on yesterday's episode. So, let's get into this Yankees farm system and the top 5, which is really exciting. It's a really good system, and I think I'm a little bit different, especially towards the back end of the top 5 than a lot of the other prospect rankings I've seen. And right before I get to that, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by BetOnline. BetOnline is back and better than ever with a new web interface for the start of basketball season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. BetOnline remains your number one spot for all basketball and football action this season. Head to their new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. All you have to do is use the promo code LOCKEDON, that's one word LOCKEDON, to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, Baseball, NHL, boxing, UFC, to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all their amazing offers that are available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts so let's start now with this Yankees system which at the top is so much fun because I absolutely and I've talked about him a lot in the shortstop episode I am such a big fan of Anthony Volpe who I think is one of the safer prospects in baseball is going to be a top 10 guy in our update and obviously given that information is the number one prospect in the Yankees system. I know that you probably just heard me talk about him a little bit if you listen to that top 10 shortstop prospects episode. So I'm not going to dive too deep into Volpe, but for those who may have missed that episode or already forgot, because I'm sure you got a lot going on and I'm sure you tune me out sometimes and I don't blame you. Volpe, really, 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 really good at Just about everything. That's what I really like about this guy. The only question I had about him, and everybody on planet Earth had about him, was how is this 5'11 170 kid, and he's put on weight since he's closer to 180, 185, how is this kid going to hit for power? And how much power is he going to hit for? Is he going to be more of just the bat to ball defensive shortstop with some speed? And that would have been fine too. But he's got way more power than we ever thought. And I think than a lot of people ever envisioned him having. And that's evident by his 27 home runs to all fields. He can drive at oppo. He's going out to dead center. He's going out pull side, of course, too. We saw the speed on display. Still 33 bags. We saw the approach on display. Got him based at a 423 clip. Walked at a very high clip. He hit 294. He did a little bit of everything. The defense was strong. His arm looked great. His feet moved well at the position. I have no doubt that he's going to stick at shortstop as long as the Yankees want him to be there, depending on what the defensive situation is with their actual big league team. But to me, it actually seems like there's a clear path for Volpe to shortstop. I think Peraza is on a faster track there right now and probably has a bit more defensive prowess. So that's the only thing. If Peraza gets up there and just looks so special defensively, then it's another story. But I think because of Volpe, and his emergence and how dominant he has been and what the Yankees are looking to do this year in this offseason in the trade market, Peraza seems very expendable to me. They still have their, their flyer prospects in the lower levels at the shortstop position as well. So it's not like there's nobody else after Volpe that's getting ready through the minor leagues. God forbid anything happens to Volpe. They still have other shortstop prospects who I'm going to get to because there's a couple that I really like in the system uh, relative to where some other people have them ranked. So Volpe, not only the number one Yankees prospect, top 10 prospect in baseball, just spectacular season, puts up exit velos that you wouldn't expect from a guy uh, of his size at 5'11", 180, and really just... An otherworldly ability to barrel baseball's zone contact rate that I think is going to be towards the top of of the major leagues and the sneaky pop all of a sudden that he's been able to demonstrate. I think the Yankees have been able to get out of so many of their prospects that aren't the most imposing physically is a really good sign. And he's just got such a quick bat that you can't really teach this has to exceed even the best case scenarios for the Yankees. And they've got to be so hyped about this guy and Yankees fans. This is somebody that you should be hyping up. This is somebody that you should be ready for anything like expecting the best, expecting all-star potential. Uh, You know, we'll see how it all plays out, but this is the prospect you should be hyping up. Jason Dominguez, who's the number two prospect in the system, hype him up too. Don't get me wrong. Get excited about this dude. But, but these are two different guys at this point, right? Volpe's, way further along in his progression yes he is a year and a half older but also didn't play last year either and honestly you know I think Dominguez has all the tools in the world but I don't know if he's going to be able to produce at such a consistent clip as we saw Volpe do in, in this season. I mean, is he going to be able to hit 294 with, with 27 jacks? I mean, the 27 jacks, definitely. But 294 at shortstop, I, like, I don't know if, if Dominguez is going to stick in center. Uh, that's a little bit of the question, too. So I'll, I'll be really honest here. And, and I feel like I want to be clear, too, because I feel like I've, I've been very harsh on Dominguez. And the only reason I am so harsh is because relative to where he's being considered and where he's being propped up. I just don't think it's fair to him, frankly, uh, to put these expectations. And the Yankees farm director said the same thing. And also from a card collecting component, because I know that a lot of the listeners of this podcast, a lot of you are card collectors as well, myself included. I I am not putting a penny into Jason Dominguez, not because I don't think he could be good, but because of how high he is hyped up right now, whether you look at the card prices, whether you look at the prospect rankings, it's not relative to to where he is as a prospect. Yes, he has just otherworldly ability physically and, and athletically, but his build isn't really conducive to baseball. And I don't know if we've really seen anybody with that kind of build In baseball, period. So I'm very curious to see if we'll be able to move well enough at the plate in center. Uh, There's definitely some stiffness to him. Uh, It'll be interesting. But on the positive side, I mean, this guy has the ability to impact the baseball that, you know, not very many, if any, 18 year olds can do. This is just special kind of power that you don't see. And, And you couple that with plus speed, even if he's not maybe the most agile, to, to even be a plus runner, whether it takes a little bit longer for him to get going or not, with his strength and his power, it is really impressive as well. A plus plus arm that could accommodate a move to a corner if needed and would probably allow him to be an above average defender out there. to plus defender out there. There's so much to like, and I, I'll, I'll stand corrected, too. He's closer to two years younger than Anthony Volpe. However he's pretty maxed out physically, right? He's 5'10", 2'10". And I don't know if there's much more uh, room in his frame He's quite literally as filled out frame wise as possible. I think that whole still as he irons out his swing, find ways to produce higher exit velos and produce more raw power. Not that that's a very necessary department, but I want to put something in perspective, just because I'm not trying to bash Dominguez. As I want to be clear too, I just like to put it in perspective of where he is compared to even a Volpe. Volpe, and this is more so to to prop up my man Anthony Volpe. Dominguez is max exit velo, and I know he's still 18, but in terms of his physical stature, how much bigger is he going to get? 111 miles an hour. And as I mentioned earlier, Volpe hit that seven times and and topped that to a 112, I believe. So that's something that Volpe routinely does with his small frame that just shows you how ridiculous his bat speed is and and how quick he is to the ball and how much he utilizes his lower half and every ounce of his strength without still having a ton of effort in his swing. That's how special Volpe is. 111 is nothing to be upset about if you're Jason Dominguez. 18 years old, producing those velos is something you don't really see. But Volpe just turned 20 to do what he's doing with his limited stature. Just incredible. Uh, Dominguez You know, there's a lot to work out. As I've mentioned in some previous episodes, uh, three for 52 against breaking balls. You know, that's something that he really needs to work on. I like the swing a lot more from the left side. The right side really needs some work. What's almost the encouraging thing in regards to Dominguez is, of course, he's super, super raw. And I think that he could get away with a lot less movement in his swing. I mean, he's got a slow leg kick. His leg hangs up in the air. His hands move a lot. It's really difficult to time up. He times it up better from the left side. From the right side, really struggles to time it all up. But I'd almost, with the output that he had this year, you know, it wasn't a fantastic season. But, you know, he held his own and showed some flashes. I'm kind of glad that there's some very obvious mechanical adjustments to make because then you can see a very big jump for him. I'm expecting if he's able to to sure up some of these mechanics with his swing and quiet things down, because again, he doesn't need to have all that movement. He's incredibly strong and an incredibly good athlete. He's gonna have easy, easy raw power with the leg kick or not. And from the right side, we really see him struggle to time up that leg kick and all that movement. It's funny, too, because when I first saw Dominguez, he didn't really have enough of a body of work to to see his statistics. It was right at the beginning of his professional career over in low A when I saw him in Jupiter, and... I knew right away, I mean, I was looking at the swings. I just, I like the left-handed swing so much better. And when I got to see some some opportunity to see him from the, the right side, I was like, ah, I don't like it as much. I wonder what the numbers are going to look like. And sure enough, I mean, you look at the, at the end of the year, Dominguez from the right side, 560 OPS. Uh, from the left side, 772 OPS. So obviously much better uh, from the left side, which doesn't come as a surprise after seeing, you know, what he looked like from both sides. The swing plays from that left side, it's more so the pre-swing movements and the inability to time everything up. It's just too hard. He's making it too hard on himself. And I'm sure the way the Yankees have been able to adjust uh, for hitters and and help them iron things out, that Dominguez will make those tweaks that he needs to make at the plate and make those improvements. Uh, I think he's going to be great. I just don't think he's there yet uh, to be in the same conversation as a Volpe or some of these other top prospects in baseball I think he's got as much upside as anybody but at this point he's just not there yet and that's why he's he's number two but he lags behind Volpe by by a little bit I mean it's it's a pretty fair amount between him and Volpe uh, but that's more so a testament to Anthony Volpe coming up number three is another prospect who has just risen so much. And he's somebody that I think might get traded. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's Oswald Peraza, who's actually closer to Dominguez than I think a lot of people may think. I'm I'm fairly positive Baseball America actually had Peraza ahead of Dominguez on their top prospects for the Yankees. And I don't even think that's that crazy because Peraza right here, you're getting a guaranteed big leaguer. I mean, the guy already played, he, he reached triple A. He hit better than ever. And that was the big thing. He really broke out offensively. We knew that he could be a potentially gold glove caliber defender at shortstop and that he's a great athlete and a plus runner. So you get a, a plus runner and a plus defender with good bat to ball skills, you're happy with that. But now Peraza hits for power in 2021. That's a different story. And that's what's turned him into from a really solid high floor prospect into a really exciting top 40, top 45 prospect in baseball. Really like that good because what went from below average power is now looking like potentially average power. The guy swiped 37, 38 bags last year, 16 of them, we're in High A. You know how I feel about the lower level stolen bases, but he stole 20 more in Double A, where there's not really any ridiculous pickoff rules, so those are legit stolen bases there. And then two more stolen bases in eight games in Triple A. So 22 bags in the upper levels, really encouraging. He doesn't strike out. I mean, struck out I believe just under 20% on the season. WRC plus around 130. He was great. He was absolutely great. And even if he was a 110 WRC plus guy with less power. He would still be probably a fringe top 100 prospect because of his athleticism and his glove. Now, with even average power, if he's hitting 15 home runs, and I think he can hit 20 plus, uh, then you have a legitimate, really exciting potential starting shortstop with above average offense plus defense. And he's going to he's going to rack it up in the war category 100 percent. And then especially with the ability to steal some bags, too, is an added bonus. It's an above average to plus hit tool. Now he's showing at least average to above average power plus runner plus defender. So much to like here. So, so much to like. And I honestly think he's going to be the centerpiece of a deal to get a major player. Matt Olson is someone that I floated on the Just Baseball show. Uh, and I also talked about uh, as a potential trade candidate for the Yankees because they could put together a package of, of Peraza and Maybe Austin Wells, you could put in Davy Garcia, throw in another one of those younger guys in the system that I'll get to later in this episode, or, or in the next episode where I get into the back end of the system. And, and you could probably put together a package for him. Uh, Peraza is the headliner. I got some pushback on that in, in an article I wrote, as some as some trades that I'd like to see. And they're like, oh, Peraza can't be the headliner. It's got to be Volpe. Well, first of all, Volpe's. Untouchable. He's in the untouchable category with those guys. Dominguez could be a headliner, uh, but I think the Yankees don't want to don't want to sell on him right now because I think he's going to iron some things out and and have a much better year next year and and really boost his value if they want to trade him or just prove that he's kind of in that untouchable category as well. I think that's the hope. Peraza is that perfect sweet spot of really really good prospect, but not a guy you necessarily don't have to trade like he's not a untouchable Uh, yes his his track to the big leagues is a little bit quicker than Volpe given that he already was up at triple a and could be up by the middle of season next year but I think Volpe's not that far behind and it's not enough to justify not moving him if you can go get him at Olsen and go get a needle moving player uh, and a potential star and I think Peraza is enough of a talent to be a headliner and a big deal can't say enough about the glove, can't say enough about the athleticism. I think this guy's going to win gold gloves because of that athleticism in his arm. He's going to make the Jeter jump throw uh, come back, but in a way where it's balls that were way further out of his range than what Jeter was was jump throwing to. No offense uh, to Derek Jeter on that one, but uh, we know some of the balls that he was jump throwing on, I think Peraza will get to on a routine backhand and he's going to just have some crazy range over there and really help out these pitchers for the Yankees and, and you need to have a premium defender there. And it's been a little bit since the Yankees have had some good defense at shortstop uh, quite some time, to say the least. Moving up to or down, I guess I should say it's a number four on this top prospect list for the Yankees. It's Luis Hill and Luis Hill right handed pitcher had a little bit of uh, not a cameo would, would undersell it. I mean, he threw 30-plus innings at the major league level. I don't know if it was ultimately the plan to bring him up, given that the... Yankees just got so decimated at times with their pitching as so many teams did this year with the just weird shortened season and then weird turnaround and uh, a lot of players just were banged up this year. Yankees were no exception and as their rotation was decimated, uh, they had to go at a certain point and call up Luis Hill. He had 29 and a third innings to be exact at the major league level and and showed flashes of of what he can do. I mean, the stuff is ridiculous, purely ridiculous. His fastball is plus plus. I mean, it's 95 to 98, can touch triple digits, but high spin in the 24 to 2,500 RPM area, and then also tons of life. He can bore it up and in on right-handed hitters. It just looks like it's taking off out of his hand. That's a pitch that he can get strikeouts on alone, just with the fastball. Then you have a borderline plus slider. I think it would be plus. It would play up more as plus if he commanded it better, but it's such a nasty pitch that it works to lefties and righties. Big-time horizontal break, sharp and late break, and off of that fastball that has good arm side run just has a ridiculous opposite type of movement that sweeps to the back leg of lefties. So it works really well to lefties. He buries it under the hands and back legs lefties, and you see some miserable swings at that, and then just breaking away from righties. He commands it better to the glove side, so it's actually been a better pitch burying in and under lefties. At times, he'll make some non-competitive pitches to righties because he'll either hang one up there uh, because of his inconsistent mechanics, which I'll get to in a minute, or he'll tug it a bit too much. So you see it work a little bit better to lefties, but that's a pitch that is really hard to hit for righties as well, especially when he locates it uh, to the glove side and even... A pitch that he could start on the inner half and, and freeze guys on as a bit of a front door breaking ball because of how sharp it is in that mid 80s range and even at times touching the upper 80s when he wants to throw it a bit more firm. That's a really good pitch. What I like about Heel is that you know we compare him, let's say, to Luis Medina because those are two guys with ridiculous, ridiculous stuff, but also come with command questions. Like Luis Heel had his best command year ever. This past year, when he was in double A with a 3.82 walk per nine rate, it was way better than he's ever done. Then he gets called up to triple A, the zone gets a lot tighter in triple A, it's much more like a major league zone, and the walk rate goes up to 5.92 per nine innings. Strikeouts still stayed ridiculous in the 12 plus range uh, per nine innings, but then at the major league level as well. 5.89 walks per nine. So still had the issue there. He was able to get so many whiffs that he pitched his way out of a ton of jams. I mean, a left on base rate of 84%. It felt like every game I watched, he'd walk a couple guys then strike out the next three. That's not sustainable. It's just not. And that's why we see the ERA at 3.07 in the big leagues, but the XFIP at 4.85. If his command can even be average or like fringe average, he will be a nasty, nasty middle of the rotation starter who can rack up a ton of Ks. And I love those kinds of guys. And the reason why I'm more optimistic on him as a starter than a Luis Medina is because there's a few reasons. One, I believe in him working out the mechanics a bit more uh, because I kind of see the mechanics as a little bit of an easier fix, which again, I'll get to two. His fastball is better than Medina's. While Medina may average a bit higher of a VLO and hit triple digits more frequently, Medina's fastball gets hit more. It's flatter. uh, He leaves it over the middle more frequently, and it just does not have that movement profile or the spin profile that Luis Heels has. So you have a better baseline with the fastball and then the changeup. I think there's some work to do on the changeup, no doubt about it. I mean, that lags behind as a third pitch for him. But for Luis Heal, his changeup to me shows a lot more signs of potential than the changeup that you see from Luis Medina. Luis Heel's has some crazy arm side run. And at times is I think when it's in the upper 80s, it is Uh, an above average pitch. But the problem is he throws it in the low nineties too frequently. And when he throws in the low nineties, it's too firm. It becomes straighter and it just doesn't have the, the velocity separation from the fastball. When it's in the high eighties, it really allows it to move and have that fade, that arm side fade that could, it's, it's enough to bury in on right-handed hitters. And of course, fade away from left-handed hitters. If that pitch can be commanded enough to even be average. And if he can keep it more in the upper eighties range, uh, this guy could be really special, number two type of potential with just average command and an average changeup. That would give him number two type of potential with the fastball baseline and the slider that he has. And I have a lot more optimism in him figuring it out than a Luis Medina, who I'll get to in in the next episode. When I watch Luis' heels mechanics, it, it seems like it's it's really lower half driven, uh, just like so many hitters. Where I mean, it all kind of coincides with each other because you see his front side fly open a bit early his landing spot often varies I'll see him you know land a bit more closed at times and then other times you'll see that foot landing closer to the first base side where his front hip is open that foot is landing so by the time he lands he's already open the arm lags behind and when the arm lags behind he either misses arm side uh, meaning like up and in towards right handers or as you naturally are going to do, as you feel your arm lagging behind, you're going to compensate and tug back over and that's the other problem. So when you're tugging back over, then you're either going to spike it or you're going to pull it glove side and that's what we see him do from time to time uh, where you're just spiking non-competitive pitches. So that's the one thing I really want to see improve from heel, obviously, is the command. The stuff, I mean, he, he showed that his stuff is good enough to dance around a ridiculous amount of walks at the major league level. Sustainable? No. But he was able to just show how good his stuff was by striking out guys in big spots for a team that was trying to stay afloat at the time, and he was rising to the occasion. And the crowd, he fed off of it. I think he's built from New York. I really like this kid. Worst case scenario, you've got a really good back-end reliever, but I've got more hope in this guy sticking in the rotation. I think it wouldn't be the worst thing ever, uh, depending on how he looks in spring training, to start him in AAA and really iron out those mechanics. But I mean, if the Yankees need him, there's no reason not to have him work some of those things out and work through them at the major league level. Special kind of potential, uh, but still just 23 years old, too. So not entirely a rush, just needs to iron out those mechanics and get a little bit more of a feel for that changeup. but plenty to like here with Luis Heel. and I think we saw that at the big league level. I would get to Everson Pereira. Spoiler alert, that is number five, and I don't think anybody has him in their top five. I haven't even seen him in that many top tens for the Yankees prospect list, so... I want to spend a good 5 to 10 minutes just talking about Pereira and how special he is and why he's probably going to be a top 100 guy on our update, yet I don't see him even in consideration anywhere else. So I really want to be able to lay out that case. So I'm going to lay that out in tomorrow's episode so that I can really make my Everson Pereira case because I think it is a really, really good one and I'm really excited about this dude. And I'm curious if teams are higher on him than the prospect rankings, and if he's a guy that might be on the move this offseason as well. That'll do it for today's episode. Again, if you could take a moment to leave a rating on the podcast, I'd really appreciate it as it helps me immensely with visibility and growing the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and spend some time with me. And again, the write-ups are embedded in the description to check out the article that coincides with this podcast to follow along with the write-ups and the specific tool grades and all of that good stuff. Part two coming out tomorrow for the Yankees farm system or for you, since I'm putting this out late at night, Uh, probably the same one in the same day. So you get two episodes if you're uh, commuting or just have a little bit more of an itch to listen to Yankees prospects. We'll have back-to-back episodes on that. And then I'm going to move over to the third base rankings for prospects on the subsequent episode for next week. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking prospects with you tomorrow.